hoity-doody little buckaroo. To you, like animals, we sure do. So come on down to the weekly meeting of the Animal Fan Club. Cuckoo, cuckoo. The cuckoo clock is proclaiming that it's creature o'clock. So ring that buzzer. It sounds like a lion roar. Roar. And open the door to join us for the fifth meeting of the Animal Fan Club. I'm semi-aquatic Mike. And I'm narcissistic narwhal hunter Meredith. We meet every week at our clubhouse we like to call the Dalmatian Station. Bark, bark! To talk about our favorite animals. What we lack in expertise, we make up for with unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow! So saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight for the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom animalia. Hey, Meredith, how's it going today? Oh, you know, Mike, it's fine. It's tough out there as a narcissistic narwhal hunter. Yeah, they're everywhere. They're everywhere, and man, do they like to worm their way into your life and fuck shit up. That's true. You got to be careful. They're sneaky with that big, it's a tooth, isn't it? It's like an extra long tooth. Yeah. It looks like a horn. But it comes out of the top of their, it's very confusing. I think it's, I think it comes out of their mouth region. It does? Because it's like the front, you know, like if it were a bottle, it would be like sticking out of the cap of the bottle, like straight up. I guess I kind of imagine, I think I'm conflating unicorns and narwhals yeah. as many have yeah and i imagine that horn is coming out of their third eye sure you know sure yeah. <laughs> that much uh fabled narwhal third eye yeah but i guess if it's coming like right out above like the or like right by the mouth it's just like a really long <laughs> tooth yeah. it's so cute well i I, kn- I know a narwhal fanatic who really um, yeah um who who would probably um be able to help us figure all this out <gasps> Oh my gosh, guest stars? Yeah, we sh- I think I think we should do it sometime. Mm-hmm. No promise that it's going to happen soon, listener. Never. But, you know, yeah, definitely I think we should I think we should have Jack on to tell us about the narwhal. I didn't know it was Jack. Yeah. We should definitely have Jack on to talk yeah. about the narwhal. So, um the unicorn of the sea. Yeah, we'll I mean, we'll uh we'll look into that. Okay. We'll see if we can line up our schedules. That sounds great. How was your week? Um animal-wise, did you have any animal moments that are worth sharing uh let's see there have been some funny memes one of which i sent to a few people today and got some pretty funny laughs so i am not a really a fish person fish kind of freak me out a little bit uh-huh. but this is so silly we're gonna have to find a way to post this on the instagram anthony sent me this today i'll just show it to you the caption says this fish looks too stupid to realize it needs water and i'm gonna show mike it kind of looks like Jar Jar Binks as a fish, doesn't it? <laughs> and he's just like, wow. yeah. he looks like a yokel, like the yokel of the fish world. He's got like gap teeth and looks real dumb. There you have it. <laughs> um, but otherwise, I'm just trying to think, not really, nothing that's coming to mind. Uh, we are constructing our Halloween costumes, which are going to be flying squirrels. Cute. More pictures on that later. So we are in a debate at the moment as to whether or not one of us should be a flying squirrel and the other one be a sugar glider because they're two species that look very similar but are actually distantly related. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like convergent evolution. That's right. You Didn't you send me a picture of like a sugar glider and a, a squirrel today? Was that you? That was me. Yeah. I posted that. I saw oh, that last right. night. You posted it on the internet. There was like a momentous meeting. It was like a flying squirrel and a sugar glider meet. For the first time. How exciting. Yeah. But sugar gliders are actually marsupials. So they're, they are 
like our blue-tongued skinks, they are Australian natives. Mm-hmm. And flying squirrels, I should probably do this research before I put on this Halloween costume. But flying squirrels are not native to Australia, as far as I know. They live in other places. Yeah. TBD. <laughs> cool. I made a squirrel friend today. Maybe he knows where the flying squirrels You made live. a squirrel friend? Mm-hmm. We just, you, you know, he just came over and said hi and then, like, <gasps> left. Oh. Yeah. Well, that's cool. It was nice. He didn't try to bite you or anything. That's good. No, he didn't get closer than, like, six feet. So it oh, okay. Was pretty cool. Yeah. Right on. I have an update concerning my cousin Labradors. I've done some additional research. And um, here, why don't we just read this exchange uh, where I kind of did a little follow-up to find out if our fish position is correct that yes. concerning Labradors, blondes have more fun. Yes. Do you remember the name of those two labs? It was a golden and a black, right? Phil was the golden lab. Martha was the black lab. Right. Were they fun? Phil was awesome. Very cool. Martha was an emotional basket case, sweet but seriously neurotic. Then there it is. I mean, yeah, it's. I think it's. I think it's uh, proven. That's our double blind experiment that yeah. I was talking about last time. I just inquired. I said, "Were they fun?" And I got the black lab was a neurotic mess, but the blonde was a total blast. Awesome is the word. Yeah, very fun. Period. Yes. The way that blonde lab was described. Well. <laughs> What better proof do we need, huh? Yeah, the fish position stands. The fish position is unchallenged. Flap your flippers, everybody. I have another animal sighting. Meredith, I don't know if you've noticed in the subway there are these signs up for the cult of cashmere. It's like an advertisement for some sweater company. What? And there are these (laughs) pictures of these models, and they're holding goats. And it (gasps) says, seek the softness, find the goat. Goat is good, goat is life. And um, the, it's in West 4th Street is where I, I took a picture of this giant billboard, but they're on the trains and everything. And it's just these models like snuggling goats. And I got to say, the goats are doing pretty good. And Tyra should consider them maybe a spinoff show like America's Next Top Goat Model. Yes. Look at those goats smizing. <laughs> no, these goats are smizing. These goats look so hosy and cute. Oh, man. Congratulations, you're still in the running to become America's next top goat model. Yes. <laughs> Shall we proceed? Ready? Okay. Texana you. Texana we. Texana who? Texana me. Kingdom. Animalia. All the Earth's creatures. Phylum. Cordata. Spooky, scary skeletons. Class. Mammalia. Oh, it's so cute. Order. Artiodactyla. Everybody raise a hoof. Family. Bovie day. Cloven hooves for the win. Order. Bison. I'm feeling so patriotic. Species. Bison, bison. Well, there goes a surprise. It's the American bison. Okay, Meredith. So we're talking about the bison, bison. Yes. That's all bison. Our bison, bison. Yes. But then there's, so within the United States, there's... Two species, two subspecies, I should say. So the species is bison bison. Uh, okay. <laughs> and then the um the two subspecies, one is the wood bison. I think those are the ones that are up more like in Canada, Alaska region. And then there is the plains bison. Um, and that's the bison bison bison. And that's in the obviously more of like the plains region, central United States. Sure, the bison bison bison. The bison bison bison. 
<laughs> Meredith, that taxonomy cheer was thrilling because I was just like, I was excited that our even-toed undulates were back. The I know. Dactyla thrilled about that. Yeah, I knew. I knew you liked that. And then the Bovi day, I was like, oh, we're doing cows. <laughs> yes, it's true. And so actually, um, yeah, so that would be the... Um, what is that? Bovie Day is family. So that obviously includes like cows and let's see what else. Obviously like buffalo, bison, I think antelope. Wildebeest maybe? Wildebeest. Oh, thrilling. Um, and then actually just like domestic cows as well. I think that's uh-huh. the closest relative to the American bison slash buffalo. But let's talk about terminology for a moment. A note on terminology. So buffalo is actually considered by many to be a misnomer. To call it a misnomer is actually kind of a misnomer because these species have been called lo- buffalo longer than they've been called bison. Mm. Yet bison is the official term for them, if that makes sense. They're technically not buffalo because getting back to this idea of like, quote unquote, true species, quote unquote, true buffalo is referring to Asian buffalo and the African buffalo, which actually look very, very different than the American bison. Okay. So those are technically buffalo, but the terms bison and buffalo are interchangeably used. So you'll hear American buffalo, you'll hear bison, but technically they are bison according to the official word on this. Okay. If that makes sense. It does. I mean, I guess. It's like, but they're bison. Yes. But we can call them buffalo, and it's not going to create a problem. Unless you come across some, you know, real animal nerd face who's just like, Oh, excuse me. Only true buffalo should be called buffalo. What you're referring to is actually the American bison. The bison, bison, bison. I dream of being the person that you just described. Yeah. I'm that person sometimes, yeah. too. But, you know, we're called know-it-alls for a reason because we do know it all. Okay. Modest. I do want to kind of get some of this silly iconography shit regarding the buffalo out of the way at the top because I think it's all kind of ironically irritating that the buffalo today get so much cred. And by cred, I mean, in 2016, the American bison was named the official mammal of the United States. And it all fe- also features on like state flags of like Wyoming, I think Kansas and Oklahoma. And it's, you know, shows up on like different mascots and all, all over things yeah, like there's like a lot of bison just like printed on parks logos and like yes you know uh it shows up like in profile on like dop kits and yes assorted items that one might buy at a camping store for instance right it's kind of become this like catch-all icon of like will like the great american yeah. west and wilderness and sure. like unbridled american spirit and uh-huh. all of this very um <laughs> colonizer language if i'm just gonna get down to it yeah um so i'm kind of foreshadowing what i'll get to later after i talk you know just like basic buff stats um but really the history of this is like i'm gonna get a little negative here um as i go on but it's a very frustrating history and the fact that these animals are being celebrated now, um, despite the awful history they have endured as species, 
um, and the relationship to indigenous populations in this country. Uh-huh. It's a very frustrating story. Yeah. Um, but I'll get to that. So I will start off by just kind of, like I said, giving you some of my basic buff stats or bice stats. Yeah, let's get buff. Let's get buff. Let's get in here. Pump some iron. Remember when we talked about the walrus? How could I forget? I know. So if we're having a competition between like beefy, beefy, brawny animal mammal battles, uh-huh. the bison would lose. It to would the lose? walrus. Oh my yeah. god, the walrus is bigger than the bison. So remember, I said the largest male walrus to be weighed, which we couldn't really figure out how they achieved yeah. this. That was, I think, it was like. 4,400 pounds, something uh-huh. like that. Sounds right. Whereas the heaviest buff or bison to be weighed is 2,800 pounds. Oh, okay. So, so like two and a half tons almost. A little less than two and a half tons. Or one and a half ton, rather. I'm sorry. As yeah. opposed to the two tons. Yeah, exactly. So we're like more like half. It's like half. Yeah, which is interesting. Because I, in my mind, I think if somebody were to just ask me, hey, you, how would you compare a buffalo and a walrus? I'd say, I'm no, I think they're probably roughly the same size. Mm-hmm. Turns out, I'm not sure about like size, size, but weight wise, the walrus far outweighs Mr. Buffalo. I'd say. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so to get, to make a link to another animal we've discussed, guess what bison like to eat? Sedges. You got it. Yes, they like sedges. <laughs> they love Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah, so they're a predom- they're herbivores and they are major grazers. So they will spend, they'll kind of like alternate. Their day just consists of like two hours of grazing and then they rest and then they chew some cud and then they move to yeah. a new area and graze some more. That's their day. That sounds so like a good day. Yeah, so they're often grazing on like grasses and sedges, just like our swamp rabbit friends. How exciting. And actually, I mean, it's, feasible that bison and swamp rabbits would have potentially inhabited the same area because the at their peak when the buffalo were thriving in this on this continent of north america they would stretch all the way from alaska all the way through down through canada and cover the mat the vast majority of the united states all the way down to the gulf of mexico oh so they covered all of like the south um the panhandle of florida Pretty much all of the Great Plains, like Ohio, Kentucky, all covered parts of the eastern United States. I mean, the populations were enormous. I don't think of them as being like a swampy creature, but I guess that there's the water, like the water buffalo is a swampy creature. It's yeah. literally like lives in the water. Yeah. So. so they're, yeah, they're another very highly adaptable species. Mm. Um, so I think ideally they love you know, their plains region, but there is still a herd, say in Yellowstone. Um, it's one of like a natural herd. Cool. And, um, so they're surviving at pretty high elevations and in some more wooded areas. So yeah, they're pretty much all over the place. Yeah. And I grew up hearing my mom talk about, there were actually spots where she would play as a kid that there were still like centuries old paths that were trampled by the buffalo themselves. Like bison highways. Yeah, exactly. And this is so fascinating. So, so fascinating. So actually, indigenous peoples moving through, migrating through what is now the United States, Mm. as we know it, um, would actually follow the paths forged by over 
like centuries and centuries by these buffalo because often they would follow watersheds. They would be able to um, kind of skillfully avoid harder to traverse terrain, more uh-huh. difficult terrain. And so these trails were invaluable not only to the indigenous populations, but the later colonizers, settler colonizers. And then actually the railway system, as it was completed west, followed a lot of these paths. Wow. Isn't that crazy? So you can ride a steam engine the like the bison way. Like mm-hmm. that's that's crazy. Mm-hmm that's almost like a natural selection sort of thing that like the easiest path kind of found itself. And then everybody Mm -hmm. went on that path and that those are the ones that survived, you know? Yeah. It's very interesting. If we were to really break down how the migratory patterns of the Buffalo are still affecting how we have settled this country. I mean, that's like a doctoral thesis right there. Oh, easily. If not (laughs) five of them. Right. So, yeah, that really, really, really blew my mind. <laughs> it actually made me even more angry about everything I'll get to. But what I kind of love is that actually Buffalo, they seem so, I don't know, they seem so kind of quiet. And if you listen to like a Buffalo call, it's just like, um, but lower than that. They strike me as just kind of docile and peaceful, but actually they're very aggressive and hard to tame. Yeah. So I mentioned that their closest relative is the domestic cow. Right. Which are very easily domesticated, obviously. Uh-huh. But none such, <laughs> no such luck with the buffalo because they're very aggressive. They can, despite being so big, they can move upwards of 40 miles per hour and they can jump up to six feet. I'm going to say that I don't think the walrus can do either of those nope, things. Nope, 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 Um, But that's a lot. Isn't like that crazy? 40 miles an hour is fast. Yeah. Like, I always think of like super fast humans, like sprinters and stuff. It's like 20, 25 miles an hour. And that's like as fast as we can go. That's crazy. Yeah. That alone is like almost superhuman. Yeah. It's insane. So 40 miles per hour for this like hulking beast is pretty unfathomable. They're pretty dangerous. So it's like, I think the leading cause of human deaths in like Yellowstone National Park, more than bears, um, because people approach these guys thinking, oh, they're so sweet. Look at that. Look at that wise face. So fuzzy. So fuzzy. Oh, it symbolizes our great nation. And then they go up and it's, they get charged. Mm. It's really, (laughs) all of this was just like turning all of my preconceived notions of buffalo, like right on their horns. Is that right? Because you thought they were docile. I did. I hadn't really considered the buffalo much. Despite having, I had this shirt that I found at Goodwill in high school and it was hands down my favorite shirt. I don't think I have it here. Otherwise I would have worn it for this. In perfect like early 90s fashion, it had kind of an ombre neon um, pattern or print of buffalo across the chest. And then at the top it just said herd of buffalo, but it was spelled like H-E-R-D. Waka waka. Yeah. <laughs> I fucking love that shirt. I wore it like every week in high school. I never changed it up. That was my favorite shirt. That's a righteous shirt. I wish I had it now. Yeah, I had heard of Buffalo, but now I know a little bit more about Buffalo. Yeah. So like the passenger pigeon, the Buffalo used to have a massive, massive, massive population, massive presence across North America. Canada all the way down into like it did extend into Mexico as well, their range. 
So that would have been like at the late 18th century, we still have populations at like 60 million. Okay. Late 18th century, 60 million. 60 million. By the 1880s, so later 19th century, so in about 100 years, the population was down to 541. Like, period. 541. Yeah. Wow. That's it. All because there was a systemized slaughter of these creatures because it was a way to essentially not only strip the Native American tribes that relied on these creatures, not only of, you know, a major source, not only of meat, but of supplies. I mean, they used every part of these animals. Well, famously, yeah. Famously, like things you wouldn't even think about. Like they would use, there's like a a tough piece of hide that kind of covers the, the dome of the buffalo head. And they were able to take that, fashion it into bowls. They could make wow. utensils out of the, the horns. Um, they would even be able to like use the stomach lining as like a, a sack to cook things. Mm. Um, and obviously the hides for their, um, various abodes and using the hides for blankets, clothing, all of this stuff, every bit of it was used. And spiritually too, these animals have a massive, massive, massive role in the spirituality of, Say, for instance, the Lakota Sioux have an entire legend based around the white buffalo and saying that seeing a white buffalo, for instance, is almost a prophetic thing along the lines of like a weeping statue of Mary is for Catholics. Yeah. You know, it's a major, major, major thing to their spiritual belief system. And so... To systematically try to slaughter, by the U.S. government, to slaughter this massive, massive, massive population of buffalo is not only to kind of strip Native Americans of an important source and economy, but to strip them spiritually as well, to rob them spiritually. They didn't even have thought systems that could conceive of extinction and what that would mean for them as people because they considered the buffalo like the first people to inhabit the earth before them even so it just makes me (laughs) yeah well it's another story of colonization like destroying like oppressing the people that are there you know yeah taking taking hold of a place and keeping down the people that were there and ruining their way of life and starving them and right killing them and using it as a way to kind of force them into you know sanctioned reservations right Things like that. And so I hadn't ever really contemplated the connection between um, the slaughtering of the buffalo. I always just assumed it was like for meat because they are eaten for meat. But largely it was a kind of like a semi-genocidal practice. It aided in this larger genocide. It's just bonkers. Of these indigenous peoples. Yeah. Not Um, hard to believe, though. I mean, knowing the history (laughs) of our nation. Absolutely not. I mean, there's pictures, this famous picture of a guy standing on top of just skull after skull, like a mountain of buffalo skulls standing like right on top of it. All of us are just going to be ground up for fertilizer. And it's just luckily now, um, I think the number I read is that the population is back up to like Uh 31,000. And a lot of them are protected um, in various uh reservations and reserves so like i've mentioned them living there's a big herd that lives in yellowstone um there's actually 
this group called the Intertribal Bison Council. So that's various um, tribe tribal representatives go and essentially are working to kind of foster this herd as a means of, you know, not only food and again, the economy associated with all the uses of the buffalo, but also kind of bringing it back to the level, the spiritual level and the um, ecological level that the buffalo would have held earlier on before everybody came in and started killing them. Yeah. Ugh. But funny note to end on a funny note. Well, let's, let me say before we go to the funny note. Okay. Um, <laughs> that I, cause I, I thought when we started doing this, I was like, well, you know, like it, there's, this is to be fun. You know, this is to be like informative and we're mm-hmm. here to learn stuff about animals and to share that mm-hmm. and everything. And so it was kind of like, well, what are we doing? Like, how apolitical can we stay in everything? And, you know, it's like, I'm not here to talk about politics. I'm no. here to talk about animals. But I will say that, like, when I found for me that when I've been reading these things about animals and it's like every article ends with, like, habitat decline and, like, yes. loss of habitat because of overfishing and, like, all this kind of stuff and, like, you know, like heading towards extinction or endangered or whatever or mm-hmm. these types of stories... You know, it's like we 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 can't ignore the the past and we can't ignore the truth about these things. And we can't like just gloss over it because it's not fun. It's like we have right. to like reckon with this, especially living in the world that we live in now and the time that we live in now mm-hmm. where this is all like like climate change and everything. It's all coming to a head and like we're going to have to deal with it for the rest of our lives, you know, right. and like maybe they shouldn't have killed all those bison and maybe like this history of moving places and oppressing people and doing all that kind of stuff. Maybe that's terrible and messed up and, and like not good and not something that like, you know, I did personally, but maybe I've benefited from and like, it's reckoning with that is hard. And I just think that, uh, I just think that it's important to do though. And here we are, heavy on episode five. But it is, it, all this research that I've been doing, It's I swear to God, every article is just like loss of habitat or overfishing or all this kind of stuff. And it's just right. like, we're, we need to like face that. It's hard to get excited and study animals and kind of go down these paths without absolutely every time running up against the detriment that humans have caused. True story. Well, Meredith, why don't you take us back to a fun place? Yes, thank you. (laughs) Um, So actually, where I used to live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, right outside of Ann Arbor, I think it's still in Ann Arbor, if you're driving out to Detroit, say you'll pass what is known as Domino's Farms. And yes, this is the Domino's pizza we all know and not really love. We all know it and eat it when we have to, when there's no Little Caesars around. Um, But I I stand for Domino's. I do not. I'm not a Domino's uh, fan. That deal, that like five, 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 <laughs> five, five, five deal. It's the best one. It's not better than the, um, what's the Little Caesars? It's the... Pizza, pizza. It's pizza, pizza, but they have this deal. It's the like... hot and ready? It's not hot. It's like a, ver- it's a subspecies of the hot and ready. It's the, um, the box set. It's the hot and ready box set. Okay. As if it's like some sort of like... Yeah, limited like toe box <laughs> or a limited edition Beatles album. Oh, like God. it's a box set. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, comes with cheesy bread and a deep dish pizza. It's the best. Getting back to the Buffalo on Domino's farms. So uh-huh. Domino's farms 
is like this sprawling complex. It's like offices and like athletic things and all and like research complexes for the University of Michigan. All this shit. They also have a petting zoo that is home to, I think, like a herd of 80 bison. Whoa. <laughs> so when you're driving out to Detroit, for instance, you can drive past and you see just bison like grazing, grazing there. And it's really cool because I don't think I've ever seen one other than that. I don't know that I ever, I might have at some point driving in the, in the, this nation of ours and all the places I've been all over it. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that I have. I've only been to like that Montana like region like once, you know. I've never been there at all. I would love to. Oh my gosh. It was really pretty. I, we flew in and out of Billings and it's Mm -hmm. crazy because you're looking down and the town's below you and then all of a sudden you land and you're like, but the town's like, a few thousand feet and then when you fly out you look back and you're like oh the town's in this river basin and mm-hmm. it's surrounded by mesas and like yeah. you just oh. kind of land on a mesa the west flying in and out of the american west is like the most beautiful experience ever like salt lake city's gorgeous yeah i've never been i oh. have to yeah, yeah you have to and like flying over the grand canyon that stuff's the best yeah Ugh. One day, one day I'll get out there. I'll see my bison up close, but not too close. So I don't get charged and killed. Yeah, please don't. Mm -mm. We don't want that. Though it would be a very like perfect way to die as an animal enthusiast beneath the even toed hooves of my great buffalo friend. Well, on that note, (laughs) um, let's go ahead and take a break. Even toed undulate death. Woo! Hey, Meredith, you're familiar with the fable of the swamp rabbit and the alligator snapping turtle, right? That's the one where the speedy swamp rabbit loses a 5K race to the slow and plodding alligator snapping turtle because it was so self-assured of victory that it didn't finish the race before napping? Well, that's the general idea, but you've been lied to about one particular detail. Oh? The swamp rabbit got hungry and spent so long looking for a sedge snack that it got lost and tired and fell asleep. For want of a delicious sedge, the race was lost? Tragic. How is an on-the-go swamp rabbit supposed to fuel up without sedges nearby? That's exactly the question Brand Clubby is answering with the announcement of Sedge Bars, a wholesome snack for the swamp rabbit on the go. That sounds like a product that fits the hoppin' lifestyle of a big old cottontail. Sedge Bars come in waterproof packaging, so it's perfect to bring along for swims, too. Splish splash! Sedge Bars are great as a meal replacement or a high-octane snack rich in fiber and antioxidants. This is kind of awkward, but I'm going to go pick some up now. Bye! You better hurry and get them before they're gone. They're sure to sell out quick. As long as she doesn't get tired and nap on her way to the store, if that happens, she better talk to an alligator snapping turtle. Freevers. Couplet. Stanza. Haiku. Here are some animal poems for you. Cool. It's chill in the cave, for the most part. The blind salamanders live in that water over there. They've been down here so long they can't see anymore. It's pretty dark. It's also pretty quiet. Sometimes the dripping can get pretty loud, but it's what makes the stalactites and stalagmites, which are soups pretty to look at. Too bad it's so dark, you can't really see them too well. Sometimes the bats show up. They're pretty easygoing. Earl can be a jerk sometimes, though. 
anyways, it's pretty chill down here in the cave. Strong sweater weather vibe. That poem was called Cave Hang. The following two poems are about geese. Ode to Roadkill, 2004. One night, two geese gave their lives in the name of Henry Ford. They didn't know a primal nighttime stroll would leave them bodiless and hating the taste of warm pavement. My next poem is called Poem After Woman in Central Park Who Snatched Up a Goose in Her Jacket. Easy spirits make no sound on trampled grass, but Goose knows you are there. He'd rather you weren't, though. He thinks your mock turtleneck color raspberry makes you look like you gave up in 89, the same year you thought you were making a statement by shopping at L.L. Bean. So despite your efforts at fun, functional female comfort, Goose knows you are there. Goose knows your intentions. But remember, no amount of birds pilfered from city parks will bring your ex-husband back. He gave up on you in 89, the same year you thought jewel tones were a good idea. To snakes write sonnets. Quails quatrains. We hope you found solace. In our refrains. Taxana you. Taxana we. Taxana who? Taxana me. Kingdom. Animalia. It's not a fungus. Phylum. Chordata. Spines are fine. Class. Aves. Birds. Cacao. Order. Strigiformes. The owls aren't what they seem. Family. Strigidae. But this one's true. Genus. Scotopelia. It goes fishing. Species. Pelly. Pels fishing owl. It's a super big owl. We're here to talk about the Scotopelia Pelly, Pels fishing owl. It I'm is, so excited. I'm really excited too. It's one of three of these fishing owls that are in this genus, and they're all Central African. They like rivers and lakes and stuff. Not to bring it back to imperialism, but <laughs> the species was named after the governor of the Dutch Gold Coast, which is now Ghana. From 1840 oh, wow. to 1850, Hendrik Severus Pell, Severus Snape Pell. Ghana's now been independent for 62 years since 1957. Go Black Stars. There are some that feel that it should be categorized with the Bubo genus. The Bubo genus. The Bubo genus. <laughs> Those are the eagle owls, and they have the fake oh, little ear tuft things. Yes, um, I know what you're talking about. Which is different than the true ear, but the... <laughs> These are not, these don't have those tufts. Okay. okay. So okay. they have like a round face, right? They're um, rufous in color, which is like a reddish brown. I was going to ask because I think we had at some point done like a prototype for the taxonomy cheer that was like a fox. No, it, was, it was the Canis, Canis Rufus. Rufus, Canis Rufus, Canis Rufus. Arf, arf, arf. 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 Yeah. That was what the um, taxonomy cheer was originally written for, the red wolf. The red wolf. So I was wondering mm -hmm. if the rufus was related to the red. I was confirmed in my suspicion when you said it was something reddish. 
Yeah. Well, wow. I did. A, I had the same thought. So um, I I went back and reexamined the Canis Rufus. And that is spelled R-U-F-U-S. And the Rufus I'm talking about is spelled R-U-F-O-U-S. Rufus. Rufus. Rufus with an O. It's like Liza with a Z, but it's all birds. <laughs> like red, brown birds. It's Liza with a Z, not Lisa with an S, because Lisa with an S goes, ah, not. That's right, Meredith. I thought so. So it is it, Rufus in color. And in the definition of Rufus, yes, it references plumage. Like you could say, that's some handsome Rufus plumage. Let me tell you, I cannot wait till I use that yeah, tomorrow. Yeah, handsome Rufus plumage. So if somebody walks up tomorrow with red hair, I can say, that is some handsome Rufus plumage. I think that you could do it, you know, these kinds of like tan suits, like autumnal colored suits, like pumpkin gourd colored Yes. Like garments that people wear around this time of year. Sure. You could compliment like a Rufus ensemble. Oh my gosh. And they would probably be like, are you trying to start a new adjective for cool? Because it's not working. And I'd be like, no, I'm just saying nice autumnal colored outfit, bitch. Well, I have another color that I learned about. It's called buff. (laughs) B-U-F-F. That's what the baby, that's the color that the the young are. They're like a solid buff. I don't, I guess I don't know my tans. Yeah. Well, buff is often, um, it's a descriptor for like a makeup, like a foundation color. Yeah. They said it was like untanned hides are frequently buff in color. Okay. And then they had like these two colors combined to make buff and they were like fanciful colors. You know what I mean? Like kitten paw and owl nose. Yeah, pretty much. So these buggers are are huge. These are some big old owls. They are 20 to 25 inches long. Again, we're talking based from territory. Like, <laughs> but that's like a big, like a 25 is would be like massive. That's like, a, <laughs> I only know of a few people that do that. Uh, its wingspan is 60 inches, which is bonkers. It is five feet. It's exactly five feet. Yeah. That's insane. That's almost all of me yeah it's not quite all of me they'd come (laughs) up to like my if they like were swat if like one end was swatting my toes the other end would (laughs) be like swatting my sternum (laughs) sounds very sexy yeah so i'm gonna (laughs) say that pell's fishing owl can reach from my toes to my sternum okay it's a toes to sternum situation Mm -hmm. i would say toes to mid neck mid neck Ooh, tickle my midnight. Tickle your midnight. That's kind of nice. <laughs> tickle my jugular. I love that. What a strange thing to say to an owl. <laughs> of the three fishing owls, the vermiculated fishing owl and the rufous fishing owl are the other ones. Pell's is the largest. It is like, some have called it the holy grail of birding. Because wow. it's an enormous bird. It's this beautiful rufous color. And it's an <gasps> earless owl. And it's in Africa. I've stayed in the continent of Africa. I never left since the Egyptian cobra. <laughs> oh, wow. So this is a bird to behold. Yeah, it's it's a huge creature. I mean, it only weighs like four and a half to five pounds. But, you know, it's it's huge. I mean, its wingspan is five feet. And yeah. it's just this enormous, beautiful, rufous-colored owl. Oh, my goodness. So do you know this word, Meredith? It's vermiculated. It means like worm-eaten is like the root of it. 
And so it's like any kind of material or surface that has like squiggles, like kind of almost dug out of it. Like absolutely. Wow. Yes. I do know what you're talking about. And it, it usually relates to plumage. And so it's just kind (gasps) of like series of squiggles. Oh my goodness. Totally. Cute like squiggle moments. So I watched an owl documentary because I needed some basic owl info. And I learned that they have superpowers. They have great hearing. They have great vision. They have night vision even on top of regular good vision. Crazy. And they can fly silently. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So cool. It's amazing. They did this thing where they, like, set up all these microphones and they had, like, two, like, science-looking guys. (laughs) Um, When you have, when you're doing recording. and Beaker from the Muppets. Like when you're doing recording, you can have like two people that look like they know science or two mm-hmm. people that they like know how to cut a good record. Yeah. These guys knew how to do good science. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. And um, they set up all these. They had an array of expensive, wonderful microphones and they were flying different birds. And then they put all the information over top of each other. And they showed in the waveform that it was just this tiny little like as the owl went past him and all the other ones were, you know, these huge disturbances and everything. Right, like so. versus. Yeah, exactly. It opened a line of inquiry, you know, for those curious about acoustics, you know, you can research this a little bit totally. further. That's so cool. Look at us opening lines of inquiry. Always. They're pretty amazing. Their faces help focus the sound so that they can hear better because the tufts that some of the owls have not our Pell's fishing owl, but um, they're not actually the ears, they're feathers. Right, but the, of course. The of course. face is shaped like a disc to help focus sound back to the true ears. Again, <sighs> we're getting, there's so much value judgment. Yeah. Okay, Meredith, I have a test for you. We're going to find out if you're an owl. So first, what I'm going to need you to do is read this tiny print number that I have over here at the top of my notebook. Can you read me back those four digits? 208? There are four digits. Oh, that's very small. The correct answer is 1764. (laughs) The next portion of the owl test is that you have to be able to hear a very quiet sound. So I'm going to whisper something into the microphone and you have to tell me if you can hear what it is. Are you ready? Uh Uh-huh. I did not hear. I just heard like gentle lip touches. Okay. Well, (laughs) we are 0 for 2. Now, Meredith, looking ahead of you, if this is zero degrees, okay, and then if you were to look directly to your right, Mm -hmm. that would be 90 degrees to the right, okay, and then if you were to go maybe 45 more degrees, that would be 135 degrees to the right, correct? Mm -hmm. So you'd be looking over your back shoulder blade, kind of like on the diag, yes? Yeah. Can you do it? No. Okay, it looks like you can get to about 90, 90 degrees on the right side. Okay, try the left side for me. Okay, about the same, about 90 degrees. Okay, so an owl can move its head 270 degrees around. Meredith, I think that we are now 0 for 3. Holy shit. Which brings us to our final and most important test. Okay. I need you to fly silently. Watch me go. Meredith has stood up. She has run away from the microphone. Oh, she's getting into a sort of pose as if she's on the front of some expensive car from the 1950s. Although it is silent, it is not flight. So I'm sorry. Oh, for four. Meredith, I just have to say, uh, you're not making a very good owl. Gosh darn it. There goes that dream. Cross that off the bucket list. It's okay. I'm O for four as well. So just some solidarity yep. here. We Pump are not it. owls. Bump it. Yeah. Touch wingtips. Always. 
the fishing owls, which is the our pals fishing owl, the vermiculated fishing owl, and the rufous fishing owl. Gotcha. This sort of like cluster of African fishing owls. The trifecta. Yeah. The thing is, is that they are more pestiferous than the other owls that consume fish, which is to say pestiferous. They eat fish. It's like pescatarian, but, you know, less pretentious. Right. Like, wait. So the Pell's fishing owl is perciferous. Yes. Meaning it eats fish. Yeah. It, it pretty much only eats fish to the exclusion of other creatures. Okay. It prefers fish. It hunts fish. It goes after fish. One time, one ate a baby Nile crocodile. <laughs> and Shit. then sometimes they get into frogs, crabs, mussels, or large insects. Okay. Reptilian buffet. It's not like I'll only eat salmon. It's just kind of like this fish is here and easy to catch. I'm going to catch this fish. But he's a fish nonetheless. Yeah. So he doesn't need to be as quiet because the fish are underwater. So they're hearing all like, you know, whatever fish here. And they don't hear the (laughs) flapping of the wings. Right. And he's got to get wet all the time. So he's lost some of the soft feathers that other owls have. And he is, in fact, not a silent flyer. So there might be hope for you yet, Meredith. You You might be able to explore this fish owl lifestyle. I, you know, I don't love fish. That might be a sticking point for me. But... Everything else, great eyesight, rotating my neck like Linda Blair style. I'm here for it. And then he doesn't have any feathers on his like talons or tarsals or anything either because they're going into the water. So they don't need to be like soggy feathers. So what they like to do is they like to kind of like hang out on a branch, like a low branch near the water and just like wait. They fish at night, you know, of course. Nocturnal fishermen? And they just watch for little waves in the water and they're like, oh, snatch. And then they eat it. And this isn't what I would presume to be like complete darkness except for moonlight, starlight. Yeah, pretty much. Whatever star I see tonight. Wish you may, wish you might, Rufus Owl. Please take flight. Another cool adaptation that they have is that they have uh, on their featherless talons, Mm -hmm. they have spiky scales on like the underside to like snatch on and like hold on to the prey wait so like what would be like the palm of our hand or the palm of our foot yeah because you think of our foot if, if like i don't know if you've ever just grabbed a fish but they like slip out yeah so if i you definitely had, like, have not spiky scales on your fingers like it would be easy to hold on to a fish totally oh my gosh how interesting yeah so their mating situation is kind of interesting they're monogamous and what they do is they kind of like partner off Mm -hmm. and then at the beginning of the breeding season they go to like an area and they go like hoot 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 and that's (laughs) how they claim hey this is our this is our spot they nest they like a they like an open hole in the side of a tree maybe near a large branch okay me too uh, like an old shady tree (laughs) i know it just keeps i just keep relating to these birds more and more down when there's lots and lots of fish, they can be so plentiful that um, the central activity of breeding pairs is sometimes only like a thousand feet apart. I think that you could say that maybe they're nesting a thousand feet apart. This feels like one of those very specific ways that you talk about something where you like zoom out in a way that makes it like general. Um, that is also like, well, central activity of breeding pairs, like you mean where they sleep. Like what, like, yeah, what what does that mean? What does that mean exactly? Like, I do have a question about that term. 
So they like to have babies during the dry times when the water is low and the fish are more concentrated. So you can think if you have this lake, you want low water so yep. that there's less place for the fish to be. Yeah, totally. Easier to snatch them up. Totally. Their typical clutch size is one to two eggs. That kind of clutch. Yes. I see. <laughs> I know. I learned a new word. Clutch is the size of the litter of eggs. Like how many eggs... Does this bird lay is like, how big is this bird's clutch? I mean, I thought we were talking like, you know, tiny wallet size to up to like full big purse size. Just the definition of clutch is that you it's not hanging from your shoulder. So I, I guess right. technically a clutch could be as big as a buffalo, but it would just be hard to carry that without a strap on your shoulder. Right. Meredith, I think 2000 pounds of clutch is about... <laughs> 1,987 pounds too many. <laughs> I think 13 pounds is the limit for a clutch. And that is amazingly massive. That's a fat cat. That's a pretty serious clutch. Yeah. No, in this sense, clutch refers to the number of eggs laid at one time. Touche. And if there's like two, they'll be born like five days apart, which is... I'm wow. Just, I don't understand this. It's magic. Incubation period is about 32 days, during which time the woman sits with the eggs, keeping the lady, you know, lady owl, mm-hmm. um, sits with the eggs. Ms. And owl. Miss Owl, yes. And then Mr. Owl flaps on over to the river and fishes and then comes back and feeds the mom. No data in my research, whether it was like a uh, like regurgitation type thing or like oh, if yeah. he just snatched a fish and then was like, here, I got you this fish. Does he feed her like the choicest bits? Like he he painstakingly takes this like, I don't know, Arctic char and brings it up to the tree and he like a little bit out of her sight. So he can prepare a romantic dinner. He like very carefully peels off like the tenderloin of the Arctic char and flaps over and just daintily dangles it above her beak. That sounds like a romantic night out. (laughs) That's like owls in love. That sounds like a romantic night out. Well, it's important to keep the romance alive because after this incubation period, you know, the birds are kind of flapping around or whatever, but they stay in their parents' territory for... For a, a long while, I mean, it's it's really like after nine, ten months that they finally oh wow flap away from their parents. That's a and, bit, you know, in a mo- monogamous relationship with a young owl at home, you know, rambunctious, <laughs> starting it's to just kind of chart his own course. I mean, it's it's tough to keep the romance alive. So Challenge yeah, I think any marriage. I think that um, I think the kudos to the owl couple that's you know still engaging in such uh, romantic night owls. Yes. If their young is threatened, they will engage in distraction displays where they'll like pretend that they have a broken limb, so a predator oh like goodness. comes over to them, and then their kid can get away, and then they can get away because they're fine. Wow. Yeah, I think this is the first creature where I've really felt like this is like relatable, like paternal instincts. You know what I mean? Totally. Like just on a on a smaller scale, it's like they gotta look after. It. They like they couple off and they have these little shits and like <laughs> they gotta feed them and keep them warm and everything. And so they only breed like every other year because yeah. the kids around, you right? Know? And it's like God, we just need some time off, uh, you know? <laughs> totally. So I'd like to do a quick little um, movie review okay. of uh, three. <laughs> Of the Pell's Fishing Owl videos that are available on YouTube. Okay. (laughs) 
There's one that's like exclusive, and that one's pretty good. It shows the owl like on a low branch by the water, and okay. like it's dark. And these people are like, "Look at that owl!" And it's it's a beautiful shot. Um, and then so they have the light projected on it, and uh-huh. the owl kind of keeps turning around and looking back at them as, as if to be like, "Hey, dude! Like, I'm trying to catch some fish over here. Like, yeah, do you mind? You, can you cool it? Like." shining that light somewhere else yeah and then like kind of looks back at the river for a while and then kind of like turns around again and is like no like really can you guys leave and like <laughs> looks back at the water and repeats a couple times i mean it's really a great video <laughs> number two is this like it's like a 20 minute and it says something about botswana in the title of it okay and if you skip to minute uh 13 they do like an owl deep dive and then mm. they go like on a adventure in the woods to find one of these owls okay complete with like crew commentary of like oh dave brought us all the way over here to walk through some <laughs> stupid forest to see some chicken you know it's great and then they find it and they have the telephoto lens and he's very excited and so that one's like pretty good um he does say owl like hole like and sometimes that um, makes it a little weird because he keeps talking about how it's a hard owl to find. Oh, Kurt. The Malawi video is a sensual meditation on captivity and the emotional depths of the owl with stimulating flute music. Oh, whoa. It starts kind of like a 70s uh, intimacy educational film. Oh, no. <laughs> and so it's like a it's like a very tight shot of like the coconuts at like the top of a tree. Uh-huh. It's not like the best framed shot. And then it go okay. it cuts to this this shot of this sign and it says Red Zebra Lodge and it's an arrow pointing and it's kind of tight on the sign and then it zooms out and there's like a big white satellite dish in the background <laughs> and then it's just all these close up shots <laughs> of the owl like framed with like the eyes it's like one of these owls in captivity i guess and it's just these these intimate shots and it's just kind of like turning and its feathers are blowing in the wind <laughs> Stop. And this like gentle flute music. It's just, it's a great video for a person to watch on a lonely night. You're blushing. I'm just so moved by wonderful cinematography and owls. I, you know what? I'm, I can get on board with that. That would make me blush too. Shucks. <laughs> uh, Meredith, that's pretty much all I, I got for your uh, Pell's Fishing Owl. Do you have any questions? I mean, I just need to say it was a pleasure. Let's take a break. I'm really up to my Vibrissay and emails. I'm past my deadline on this burrowing project. And I still have to coordinate that Nest Materials meeting. And I have a big presentation on sedges next week. I'm just swamped. It's important to eat healthy meals at home during such busy times. But when am I going to find the time to hunt? Or go to the meat center to pick up ingredients? I get stuck in the rut of eating the same meat stuff over and over again. That's why I like Red Ventral Surface. It's a meal kit subscription service that specifically caters to the young carnivores who are living a busy lifestyle. Wait, I've heard about them before. They send pre-portioned meal kits right to my burrow? They sure do. My favorite right now is the antelope kidney tacos with a mango chutney. Ooh, that sounds delicious. My cougar pal uses the service. Her favorite is the wildebeest haunch banh mi with raisin coleslaw. 
Yeah, that one is tasty too. One time I substituted figs for the raisins. It was delish. Sign up for Red Ventral Service today using code AFCRULES for 10% off. That's rules with a Z. Because we're totally tubular, just like tuna kits. I use the Red Ventral Surface app. It's so easy. You can pick your favorite meal kits and it even saves your preferences. I can set it up so I never get any birds. How awesome. Birds taste gross. Well, that's your opinion. I think birds are delicious. Sign up today for Red Ventral Surface and don't forget to use code AFCRULES with a Z for 10% off. Yum, yum. Well, I think we've found our way into the listener feedback. Oh, (laughs) What's in there, Mike? Well, uh, Max in Chicago asks, how does aquatic life feel about the Rhine maidens? Oh, man. This is a question Wagner scholars have pondered forever. Yeah, I'd say. You know, I, I being not a Wagner scholar myself, I would say the aquatic life were kind of like, get these divas out of here. Yeah, I think that probably the bivalves didn't notice. I think yeah, that definitely not. I think they there's no way they had any clue what was going on. I think the crustaceans were under assault because I think the Rhine maidens probably just left their bags wherever they'd like. Yeah, and they were a mess. The yeah. Rhine maidens are messy. The fish? I think the fish wouldn't be into it because it's rivals for like I I picture the Rhine maidens wearing kind of like glinty shimmery gowns of some sort or some sort of like yeah, something that catches the light. Some sort of like yes. scalar iridescent glam Exactly. Moment. And I feel like the fish would be like, this is my thing. And I naturally own it. So what are you trying to like outdo me artificially? I don't think so. I don't get to buy my adornments. So I think the fish would be a little miffed, if not a little threatened by the Rhine Maidens. Perhaps even annoyed. Oh, like, well, ultimately, of course. I think in general, the aquatic life would not be into the Rhine maintenance. No, invasion. Invasion by really high maintenance people. Well, the fish position is that aquatic life does not like the Rhine maintenance. Hell no. Ding, 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 ding. Blake in Manhattan asks, do yellow jackets stay dry in the rain? So I would say, I mean, I can only relate this to my own experience. And I'll say, you know, up. A rain jacket is really just delaying the inevitable or lessening the blow of the inevitable is that you're going to get wet. You're going to get wet. Yeah. I would argue that yellow jackets do not get wet in the rain. Yeah. Because they do not fly in the rain. Because if they do fly in the rain, they get get knocked right down and they stay wet and then they stay dead. Good call. Okay. And they're not yellow jackets anymore after that. No. Then they're just dead. Indirectly, I think we could be we could be agreeing because essentially I'm saying you're going to get wet no matter what. And then you're saying they just don't fly out because they're going to get wet no matter what. Uh, Well, yeah, that's true. We are both saying that if they leave, they get wet no matter what. Right. And then they could potentially potentially they could potentially die. Go tits up. So uh, we're saying that yellow jackets do not stay dry in the rain. We say that, yeah, they do not stay dry in the rain. The official position is that yellow jackets do not stay dry in the rain. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, next we got one from Lisa in Santa Fe. Lisa asks, mate, 
pear, feed upon, lemur, Madagascar hissing cockroach, bullfrog. Oh, man. Definitely mate with the lemur because, I mean, the the stamina. Yeah. I mean, think about those Tafika lemurs that are just leaping all the time. Those thigh muscles, those quads are going to be built yeah. up. And those they have those hands, too. Don't they have, like, thumbs? Yeah. Yeah. I think lemurs are probably a pretty good They're job. pretty um, dexterous, we'll say. Yeah. So, yeah, I would definitely mate with the lemur. So we have pear and feed upon. Madagascar hissing cockroach and bullfrog. I think that there is kind of a different style just in terms of our, you know, partnering off. Like our cockroach is really that fidelis. I just feel like there's so many of them it would be hard to keep track of. I feel like if you're getting into a relationship with a cockroach, you have to go into it just expecting that. And maybe that's cool, maybe that works for you, but like yeah. you just have to know is that right for our fan club? I would say no. I see. I'm more thinking like, what's the tastiest treat? I think a crunchy little protein filled mm. cockroach would be the best. I don't want to eat a frog. Have you ever had frog legs? I haven't. They're they're um, not the best. I'm just not. Yeah, I'm not an adventurous eater at all. Very picky. Okay. Yeah, I think like a little crunchy protein snack is always kind of nice. So we're gonna say that we want to feed upon the Madagascar hissing cockroach. Yes. Which means that we're going to pair with the bullfrog. So we're saying we're mating with the lemur, pairing with the bullfrog, feeding upon the Madagascar hissing cockroach. Yes. The official position is that we will mate with the lemur, we will pair with the bullfrog, and we will feed upon the Madagascar hissing cockroach. Thank you, Lisa in Santa Fe. Ding, 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 ding. Ding, 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 That ends this week's listener feedback. Great work, everybody. Keep them coming animalfanclubpod at gmail.com So that concludes this week's meeting of the Animal Fan Club. Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. We're both on Instagram at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the Animal 